as we come back and sit and take a deep breath filled with all of the goodness that you just experienced in fellowship. Let's turn our hearts to today's scripture. It's in Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I'll sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day, their plans come to nothing. But blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob and whose hope is the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. And he remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down because the Lord loves righteousness. The Lord watches over the foreigner and he sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ashley. If we have not had a chance to meet, I am one of the pastors here at Mars Hill, and it is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, A quick little intro to what this is. Recently, our family started composting. And let me tell you how composting works. Our family takes food scraps and we dump them into this bin. After about two weeks, the scraps get picked up. They're taken to a station where Wormies, our local composting service, gathers all the scraps from the area and then they sit there for about 15 days. Yum. They're heated up to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and then whatever that becomes is fed to worms. Worms then feast on this delicious, hmm? And as they feast, they further break it down. Then what that becomes sits for 60 days and ends up turning into this nutrient-rich, magical soil that's then given away. And our family has chosen to give our nutrient-rich soil away through Wormies to our local MLK Park Freedom School, where kids in our local area learn about the earth and how to care for it, and they end up using this nutrient-rich soil to grow beautiful things at our local park. So, as our family, this is our actual bin, by the way, I recommend you not come close, just just so you know. 
So we lift the lid on the bin, and these are scraps just from yesterday. We take things like banana peels and apple cores and sweet potato peels from Delwyn's dinner that he made last night, mm, delicious. Blueberries that had the fuzzy stuff on them. And we've got some eggshells in here, and in it goes. Now, imagine that I said, you know what, I've got some other things, some other things in my house that I really deeply value. Some things that I would consider to be quite precious and irreplaceable. Say, for example, I told you that I have my grandfather's pastoring handbook from the year 1887. Say that I wanted to put my grandfather's handbook into our composting bin. Say I wanted to put my passport, my real life actual passport, into the same place where the scraps go. Say that I showed you my grandmother's wedding ring, irreplaceable. And I told you that I was going to put this in the exact same place where the worms feast. Now knowing what you know about the composting process, would you recommend that I knowingly insert some of my most valuable possessions into the place that will eventually become worm poop? Would you? Well, here we go. I put my most valuable possessions in this bin. Don't come shake my hand afterwards. It's sticky. Because we wouldn't dare place our most precious possessions in what will eventually become waste, would we? Not naturally, but here's the problem. We would. And we do. Recently, there was a study done by Gallup Research that shows that we, as Americans, are putting less and less trust in our government institutions by the year. So there are a bunch of institutions, I think 14 or so, and collectively, the aggregate data shows that we're now at only 27% in terms of our trust. If you look back to just 1980, that was up closer to the 50% mark. Something is happening, and our trust in our institutions is decreasing. But in an accompanying article, same Gallup research from last October, writer Frank Newport ends on a high note when he says Americans have in recent years become more negative about their government, but Americans' confidence in the people themselves 
remains significantly higher. Perhaps there is some hope along these lines. Pew Research last year found a majority of Americans saying that they, that is, Americans themselves, can always find ways to solve our problems and get what we want. We may not have high trust in government institutions, systems, or structures, church, but we really, we really still do trust ourselves. Psalm 146 is the first psalm of the final halal of the Psalter, this book of Psalms, or the final five Psalms. If you read Psalm 146 to 150, there are all these songs of praise. Each Psalm, starting with 146, begins and ends, begins and ends with this word hallelujah. In the Hebrew, it's hallelujah. Yahweh, or praise the Lord. That's the reason why Dellen would invite us to sing songs of praise, because this part, the very end of Psalms, invites us to do just that, to praise the Lord. But 146 is especially interesting because if you look closely, there are all these different components that make up 146 altogether. Verses 1 and 2 just stop at one and two. It's a personal command to the psalmist's own soul to praise. Parenthetically, if you've ever shown up on a Sunday to a gathering and you don't feel like being here, someone forced you out of bed, or you feel particularly cranky that day. Perhaps you're finding it difficult to give God praise for anything because of the week you just had, if they only knew. Might I invite you to consider that there are times, as the psalmist shows us in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 146, where a command to our souls to praise God is appropriate because regardless of how we feel, God is worthy to be praised. Hallelujah. So there's this command, and then there are these three verses of instruction. The psalm is what James L. Mays calls a sung lesson. It gives us an example of wisdom, wisdom as a form of praise. Have you ever considered that? That wisdom, whether it's received or given, isn't just a good idea. It's not just nice to give or have, but that wisdom could actually be a viable part of our worshiping life. Wisdom is a form of praise. That's what Psalm 146 invites us into. And the wisdom offered here, it has everything to do with where one should place one's trust. The wisdom comes to us in two parts, two simple parts, really. The first part is we have to discern what is finite. 
And here's where we have to talk about what trust actually is. The Psalm says, do not put your trust in princes. In human beings who cannot save, when their spirit departs, they return to the ground. This word trust is the Hebrew word batak. But broken down, here's, I'm going to show you the, the three lines of how it's broken down. We've got bet, just like a house, tet, which is like the basket or the surrounding, the container, the container, and then chet, the wall, divide, half. So ultimately, this word trust can really be given to us as the family surrounded by the wall. There's this image of a, a family surrounded by a wall. Consider perhaps you or your neighbors. You live in a house or a condo, an apartment, a dorm room, and you're surrounded by a wall and all the things that go into protecting who you are. Perhaps your ring doorbell or your nest notifications. You locking your doors or windows at night, checking to make sure the flood lamps are on before you go to bed that point to the most vulnerable parts of your house. The psalmist sings, do not put your security and confidence in human beings because when their spirit departs, they return where? They return to the bin. They return to the worms. There is a finite nature to who we are as human beings. There's only so much that our lives can do. And the psalmist knows this. The grammar structure here is really, it's quite playful. This is a reversal of the language that we find in Genesis 2, where from the ground, Adam comes. And to the ground, to the worms, we return. There's this great reversal of our human nature. In other words, I hear the psalmist saying, where you place your ultimate trust, where you place your ultimate confidence and security really matters. It's extremely valuable. It might even be more valuable than your grandmother's china or your championship ring or your social security card or your financial plan. Whatever you consider to be the most valuable things in your life, it really matters where you choose to place those things because there are some things that do not last. There's some things that fade away. The psalmist encourages us, do not compost your confidence. Do not put it where it will not remain. Our human frailty is further punctuated here in the text when we look at the name used for God in verse 5. God is specifically called the God of Jacob. Remember last week we talked about how interesting it was that the psalm used a very specific name for God. Here it's the God of Jacob. And this might certainly be just referring to God's people as a whole. But remember, there's an individual implication to the psalm as well that we started off with, where the psalmist compa 
compels the psalmist's own soul to praise. So I was thinking, let's rewind to Genesis and understand Jacob's story. You understand that Jacob stole a blessing, stole from his brother Esau. And there's a point where Jacob is waiting to meet Esau for the very first time since he stole his birthright and his blessing. He's alone and a man wrestles with him all night until daybreak. And the account in Genesis 32 goes like this. It says that when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then later, Jacob names this place, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So Jacob wrestles with God, and God ends up blessing Jacob, grants Jacob protection. God gives Jacob a new name, but not without this reminder that Jacob is to be forever dependent on the God who saved him. He has this permanent reminder that he has been touched by God, and no matter what he accomplishes, in his life, no matter what success might come. Here's this reminder to Jacob and ultimately to his descendants that we need God, that we need God. So in our discerning what is finite, perhaps you write these questions down and consider them later in your own time. But I ask you, what saving power has any one person in your life claimed? Think of the people or the person you trust the most. If you were to be honest and say, I put my confidence in the president, the governor, my financial advisor, my parents, my education, if you were to say and be honest and practice confessing those in whom you really place your trust, what saving power has that person or those people claimed? And have you exchanged that power for dependence on God? Is there a level of human trust that you would say, this is beyond relationship, this is beyond the trust I place in a friend? that is healthy and additive and right size. This is beyond the trust I place in a family member, a spouse, someone who's grown near to me. But actually, God, I might name that the trust I place in this person or in these people really has taken the place that only you can fulfill. Might be, we be willing to confess that today? I love what Caitlin Beatty says in her new book. She says, if a person's faith in Christ is so centered on one powerful individual, when they fall, so do we. So do we. And perhaps we may not notice it, but maybe over time we notice that we've become more fearful or anxious, uncertain, our confidence 
has been really put someplace else. So who have you been counting on to save you? In whom have you been putting your trust? We must discern and be sober about knowing what is finite. But the second part of the psalm invites us to consider and remember who is forever. Who is forever. Catherine Clark Kroger and Mary J. Evans, they say, mortality renders people unreliable. But experience of God proves God always to be trustworthy. Jacob emphasizes the weakness and need of God's people, but their creator is also the Lord their God committed to them in covenant love. There's a story in Luke's gospel that sounds almost like a parallel to verses 6 to 9 from Psalm 146. And it's found in Luke 4. I'll just read this one bit over us. It says, Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was the fulfillment of a commitment made to God's people in covenant love. Jesus could be counted on to save. And we see how the people respond. Take a look, Matthew 15. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised who? The God of Israel. What was Jacob's new name given to him? Israel. The people see Jesus living out the fulfillment of who they were told was going to save them. And they respond with praise to the God of the one who was weak because they now see that promise come to fruition. Praise in response to wisdom given and received, Mars Hill, is a form of our collective life of worship. So if God in Christ is really the only one who can save, how do we relocate? How do we relocate our treasure? and take it out of the places that we're told fade away, the places that decompose, the places that will soon pass, the places and the people who may no longer be remembered. How do we relocate our trust and place it rightly in the God of Israel? I'll be honest with you. I had a hard time saying, God, how do I, how do I, practically put my trust in you. Because it's one thing to sing it. It's another thing to say it. But just like you, I leave someplace like Mars Hill Bible Church and I go back to my house and you know who I put my trust in, church? If I were to answer the same question I just asked you, I put my trust in myself. I put my trust in my own planning and organizing abilities. 
put my trust in my own education. I, I put my trust in my skill all the time. So if I'm going to take what I have placed my trust in and relocate it rightly, I want to know what does that really look like? And I could think of one practice to bring to us today. And it's the practice of Sabbath. It's the practice of Sabbath. And I'll ask you just straight up this morning, do you enter into the Lord's gift of Sabbath regularly? Do you? And if not, why not? Ruth Haley Barton has a book coming out called Embracing Rhythms of Work and Rest. And she talks about Sabbath. The whole book is about embracing rhythms, joining with God in good restorative work, but also joining with God and saying yes to the gift of Sabbath. And she says, when we think of Sabbath only in terms of rest and replenishment, we are selling it short. The practice of Sabbath keeping was and is an act of resistance against a culture that brainwashes us into thinking that good things come only through unceasing determination, tireless human effort, and always being plugged in. To fully understand the practice of Sabbath keeping, we must see it as integrally connected with trust, an increasing capacity to trust God for provision in the life of God's people. If we are ultimately placing our trust in human beings, human beings who, I don't know about you, but who like me don't know how to stop, if we are placing our trust in human beings who pursue the accumulation of more, if we place our trust in human beings who do not always embrace God's best in terms of rhythms and restoration, if we put our trust in human beings who do die, then we'll never know the grace available from a God who did stop and whose kingdom will never die. Sabbath is the gift of God meant to situate our trust rightly. When we come to the end of ourselves and our own limits, when we choose to come face to face with our own finitude and the imperfections of our systems and structures, we proclaim that we cannot always solve our problems and get what we want, as the research says, but we proclaim where we are choosing to place our trust, and that trust is in the God who can and does save. So how do we do this? There's so many resources that I will direct you to Tim to give you from his formation school treasure trove. But I found something that he shared with me from the Denver Institute for Faith and Work. And they really break down Sabbath into two parts, right? The first is to cease work, a 24-hour period where you do not tend to work-related email, phone calls, text, studying, or thinking productively about your work. 
Can you do it? I know I still struggle. Dylan and I have made agreements, and yet those agreements, especially for those of us with little children in our home that we are caring for, we also need to receive grace for the times that we do not get this perfectly, where we are invited to cease work and enter into another kind of work. But ultimately, can you put your work down? And second, can you pursue restoration? Restoration in the form of play, of rest, restful rhythms, understanding the role of media, and saying no to being overly inundated with those inputs. I'd also even say that for me, I've come to understand Sabbath as an invitation as I'm sitting still for God to dredge up all the things that I've been trying to run from. Sometimes I come face to face with myself. But I also see Sabbath as an opportunity to say yes to God's justice. God, what are you trying to restore either in the world around me? Help me notice. Help me notice what you're trying to restore in me. I love what Fleming Rutledge says in the crucifixion. She says, whenever justice rolls down like waters, it is a sign that God is on the move. Furthermore, provisional victories of justice in this present world, whether large or small, are a foretaste of the day of Yahweh. So in some ways, I feel like entering into Sabbath rest, not just as rest, but as an uh, a physical yes to trust helps me see what God is doing in the world differently, helps me place my trust in the ways that the kingdom is now and not yet. One of those examples is one we started with. It was Freedom School. I'll show you the second picture. These new garden boxes are now lined up by the soccer field at MLK Park. If you know any of the history of MLK Park, this is an area that was largely redlined. We've talked about kind of the impact of, of redlining in this neighborhood specifically, where there's economic devastation, where local leaders would say that children in those surrounding public schools do not get equity and opportunity in many ways. But Freedom School was a way in which someone said, let us take scraps and give children an opportunity to create something good, to be a part of the renewal of the earth right in their very backyard. So I look at this picture, yeah, I look at this picture and I say, on a day where I am open to trusting God, it may not matter that day what's happening in the world around me, but I can say yes to the rest and trust in the God who saves and say, God, you are making things new if I choose to see it. You are doing new things in me. What amazes me is that what's broken down can never return to its original state. My banana peel will never be returned to me as a banana. It won't become new on its own. We cannot save ourselves. Do not compost your confidence, Mars Hill. Instead, 
May our lives of worship reflect the wisdom to place it in the one who does save, in the one who is making all things new. And so the psalmist ends with a confession in verse 10. The confession is this, that despite what passes away, the Lord God reigns forever. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen.